Welcome to another episode of War Stories. I'm Tom. And I'm Chuck. And uh, we have a really cool guest. Uh, and I'll get into a very coincident law enforcement uh, community, uh, the sheepdog community. It doesn't matter what generation or age you are. Uh, it's a very small community. And it gets ever- smaller and smaller every time I do this show and we run into a guest that you have a connection with or I have a connection with. Mm-hmm. Hell, even our meeting, Chuck, was... John introduced me to you and we were recording an episode. I don't know if the audience knows this. We were recording an episode, two episodes in one day and we had a guest leaving and we had Chuck coming in to record his episode. And as our guest was leaving and Chuck was coming in the front door, they passed each other. And it turns out that our guest that was on his way out, Walter had been Chuck Sergeant at his agency (laughs) previously. Yeah, and they I just know. were randomly scheduled well. for the same day. And oh, I had known Walter since I was in high school. So, oh my God. It who is do we have today, for Chuck? A decade, yeah. Huh? Oh, we have a. Uh, I'm sorry. The, the, the connection's poor um, on my end, I think. Uh, we have Gary here, Gary Eddington. He's a retired California DOJ, Department of Justice Task Force Commander out of Los Angeles. He started as an explorer. Um, and later a cadet with Culver City PD in 1974. He was then hired on with Manhattan Beach PD in 1979. Um, he was in the third week of the LASD, Los Angeles Sheriff's Department Academy, class 197. Um, when uh, we'll get into it on the show. Um, uh, That's kind of what his story involves. But his dad, who was an officer with the Los Angeles County um, Harbor Patrol, was attacked. Um and then uh, he continued with his training and graduated uh, with his class, ended up at the California Department of Justice and worked counterterrorism from 1999 to 2008. He commanded a task force in L.A. from 2001 to 2008, finished his career in 2008, and went to Iraq as an embedded advisor with the Army. Now, yeah. welcome. And it's, I want to say, is it Edgington or Eddington? Yeah, Edgington, yes, it is Okay, Edgington. got it. Okay, I misspoke. That's Gary okay, man. That's Edgington. cool. That's no, cool. no, I just I wasn't sure because I, no, I had no, heard no, you no. say it one way, and, and so I wasn't yeah. sure which way. No worries, man. Um, but welcome to the show. We, Thank we you. appreciate I'm you. Very having. pleased to be here. And for those of you that don't know, uh, as we're getting ready to record, uh, Gary jumps on this meeting call and uh, says, "Hey, I looked at your website, and uh, that's a DOJ badge you're wearing on your pet." And it isn't. I was in fact attached to a DOJ task force, and. Uh, the task force, the outgoing task force commander that uh, was commanding that task force, it was a friend of yours. Is that correct, Gary? Yes, that's correct. Wow. Worked together at uh, L.A. Bureau of Narcotics Enforcement and the L.A. Field Office for DOJ. L.A. B&E, man. Um, in fact, I, I could probably throw out some names and you would probably because B&E oh. in DOJ oh, yeah. is very oh, yeah. small. Um, I worked with Rodney John. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I worked with Javier Solis. Delice. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was out of Chula Vista PD, and then he uh, mm-hmm. he went from Chula Vista to okay. uh, B&E. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so I worked with a bunch of guys from B&E, and uh, you were part of DOJ, but you were not B&E. You were... No, I was, actually. Oh, B&E. I, okay. 
I, I hired on with B&E and then I moved over to the Bureau of Investigation after a couple of years in B&E. Okay. So you started at B&E and then went to B of I yeah, or whatever. Okay. And then uh, is that you, um, were you like, because LA Impact is a separate office from LA B&E, right? Actually, it was upstairs in the same area. Impact. But it was, was, it was a separate team? Is that how it worked? Because I know yes. LA B&E was separate and LA Impact was more of the task force, but you guys did share the same building. Yes. LA okay. Impact had their own workspace, but um, there were lab crews. There were two lab teams. Um, there were two surveillance teams. Um, there was a diversion crew, which was pharmaceuticals. And then um, there was a, a by bus crew and a violent a big offenders crew. It's a, yeah, LA Impact was a cool team. Now, and, did you know, uh, do you know Mike Kennedy? He was CNOA region president for our uh-huh. region, oh, yeah. and uh, he's Tim Kennedy's dad, the, okay. the yeah. MMA fighter. Oh, yeah. Um, I, he was oh, on our really? task force. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So okay. I worked with Tim. Tim Kennedy actually grew up in my city, and uh, Mike. I worked with Mike Kennedy, his dad, on, on the task force. We worked some narcotics cases. Mike was, in, Mike was a narc guy from way back, and he knew all the B&E guys and um, he'd been working dope for 20 plus years. So Tim Kennedy, uh, this amazing guy, that dude is, <laughs> wow, man. <laughs> man uh, his dad was, like, his dad was a really good narc and a uh, really good, really better dude. I've been to his house for Christmas parties and mom's great lady. Tim? And what did Tim lived Tim? in our city. Yeah. When he was a kid. Damn. Hmm. So yeah, I remember I when Mike there. came into the task force one time and was like, hey, Tim's going into the army. <laughs> yeah. After 9-11, oh, wow. what I read, he um, yeah. he was, I don't know if he'd finished the academy yet or not, but um, he enlisted in the army and then went SF. And Yeah. So anyway, so real, real tiny, tiny law enforcement community is, is wow. hilarious. And especially a B&E, which is a small agency anyway. So that's yeah. cool that you worked with uh, a lot of the, the LA B&E crew and the LA Impact guys. Yeah. That's a cool team. And uh, sadly, uh, our mutual acquaintance, Bill Garvey, uh, passed yeah. away. Um, he was a, our task force commander when he was killed in the line of duty, um, driving home for an operation. So uh, yeah. drive safely, boys and girls. Yeah, I'm just curious. Do you know anybody from LAPD? Yes, I do. I I'm do. sure at LAB&E, you probably know a ton of guys from LAPD. Well, I actually worked very closely with uh, Major Crimes Division, the counterterrorism section of Major Crimes Division. Uh, um, I worked with detectives on the Joint Terrorism Task Force from LAPD. They're awesome guys. I worked with the sheriff guys, too, but primarily did a lot of work with LAPD. We would put together target packages on um, on crooks. Um, because we were, we, our mission was to develop intelligence on terrorism related subjects. And then we would pass that target package on to, uh, the door kickers. And we passed a lot of stuff on to, uh, the, the, the criminal team over at major crimes division. Um, awesome guys, great detectives. Um, man, they're just great guys. In fact, one of, one of the guys I used to work with in LA now lives out here in North Carolina. Talk if we all. get if we get any further down this rabbit hole, there is a genuine possibility that you will know my father. Really? <laughs> yes. So my my father taught at CSCI after leaving LAPD. Okay. Um, so he taught uh, emergency management, emergency preparedness, terrorism, 
okay. all that stuff for CSTI. Um, and through my father, I ended up, he, he was, uh, do, do you know, uh, Tom McDonald? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah and Paul Miller. Paul Miller. No. Paul Miller was a terrorism guy, but okay. he was, he was a LAPD terrorism guy. And okay. my dad was Paul's supervisor at LAPD before oh, really? he retired. Yeah. Oh, really? uh, and then oh, really? my, when my dad retired from LAPD, he went up to CSTI to teach, uh, emergency management. Terrorism, and, ICS, what, what, all that kind of stuff. And, and did your dad work in major crimes, or did he work? No. In, uh, uh, what the hell did they call it? it what not PDID? Um, anyway, LRPU, the Long Range Planning Unit. No, he oh, basically no. ran the EOC and oh, then okay. taught, okay. Yeah, and then taught at CSTI. So he, if if there was an incident, no matter what it was, whether it was terrorism related or whether it was earthquake related. He was going to be running the operations of the. We did so much training at CCI. I can't even tell you. Um, And I used to go to that state place on Pacific Coast Highway in Jocko's. Um, it's or McClintock's. McClintock's. I used to go. Oh yeah. Almost like it was like a it was a a a pilgrimage. It had to be done every time I was in uh, in that area. I had to go there. Okay. So you know? Do you know Rob Gandy? Uh, or uh, Tony Lucan. I know Tony Lucan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my dad and my dad and Tony are buddies, and oh, yeah. Tony Lucan came on to teach there. Uh, and my dad would do blocks of instruction for Tony. You know, I am sure I have met your father. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be willing to bet. I spent so much time in training classes and all kinds of stuff at CSTI that I have no doubt about it. And you know, Thursday. Thursday afternoons, the uh, the farmers market was always uh, yep. always fun too. Oh yeah. So this is this is what a small world law enforcement is, I boys know. and girls. Yeah, so uh, I worked on a state task force at, with a supervisor that uh, knew Gary, and uh, Gary would go to classes where my old man was an instructor. So <laughs> it, it, now Gary's in North Carolina or South Carolina. North Carolina, North Carolina, and I am in Idaho, and Chuck is in LA, and we all know the same people, which and, is pretty hilarious. And I used to have a cabin until two thousand or uh, twenty twenty one in Sandpoint, Idaho. Oh, geez, you know, um, should have held on to it. It'd be worth ten times that. Oh, I know, <laughs> but you know what? When we moved out here, it was too hard to get to from uh, oh. LA. It was too hard. It was yeah, like I'll a bet. seven hour trip, and then yeah. I'd, I'd fly into Spokane. And then it was another two hours, uh, you know, driving into to Sandpoint and then up yeah, to Sandpoint. I got a buddy that was on the task force. Bill Garvey was his supervisor. He mm-hmm. is retired in Sandpoint. So, okay. Just cool. small world. I know. I know. Well, yeah. so what is this story about your dad? Because your dad worked for LA County Sheriff. And I know the details a little bit from the email, uh, right. you know, back and forth with Chuck, but I can't wait to hear it firsthand because this is, this is a, a, apparently it's a story that I know, but, Apparently, you've got some new information on it or some different information yes. on it. So, so basically, 1979, um, this incident occurs in Marina Del Rey. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with Marina Del Rey, but it happened yes. right next to what's now the Cheesecake Factory. Back then, it was Chuck's Steak. Yeah. Okay. And this, the official story goes that my father was writing a parking ticket. And um, an individual uh, by the name of Stuart Schwebel, um, may he rot in hell, um, yeah. uh, basically um, is approaching my father holding a buck knife in his hand, a folding hunter knife, you know, which is like a three, three and a half inch blade knife. 
And uh, the story is that my father really doesn't recognize the threat at first. And then he does recognize the threat and he starts backpedaling and he pulls, he's pulling his weapon out and he's having trouble pulling his weapon out. It's, he's struggling. He had a Bianchi brake front holster that I had bought him. Oh, geez. And, and um, the crook breaks into a run. My fire, my father fires a shot at like 15 feet, supposedly hits the guy on the left hip. And the guy jumps on him, stabs him in the solar plexus, and then cuts his right carotid artery and does some other bad stuff. And then uh, a couple of sheriff's deputies respond and engage him at a place that used to be the Yankee Peddler, but now it's like Jamaica Bay Hotel. And uh, there was initial engagement there. They saw he had my dad's gun. They saw he had a police officer's gun in his waistband. It had Pac-Meyer grips. It was a little 15 Smith. And... This guy um, had emptied the gun already. He'd taken the shells out of the gun, you know, the five live and one spent. And uh, the round had imp- my, my dad's round impacted him in the hip. One one part of it um, lodged in the hip. The other one uh, exited out the front. And so basically um, they killed the guy where the Marriott is. That that was a vacant lot where the Marriott is now. That's where the, the, the final shooting occurred. Okay. So I'm in the third week of the academy, and I get the call to come to Marina Mercy Hospital, and I'm greeted mm-hmm. by an LAPD Beach officer who tells me that my father is gone and all this yeah. stuff. And, you know, of course, it's, you know, it's awful. And so they try to – they investigate the thing, and they put it try to put it together, and they come up with a video that kind of, sort of, um, in very general terms – um describes what happened like a reenactment mm-hmm. yeah it was you know one of those la county sheriff's reenactment right. things that training bureau does okay now okay yeah I've seen those. yeah you know at the time the la county harbor troll um they trained at the sheriff's academy but they were not deputies they are now they're all they've got absorbed by the sheriff's department they were all deputies but right. back then they were a separate law enforcement agency in in la county so um Naturally, I'm in this business and I'm trying to reconcile all of this in my head. And I'm thinking, well, you know, if that had been me, my reflexes, I'm younger, my hearing's better. You know, I would have responded. Right. I've been more familiar with my equipment because I used to qualify at the range, you know, and they didn't they didn't shoot from the holster back then. They just did point shooting, you know. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. At the Sheriff's Academy, wow. that's what we did. We did point shooting. It wasn't until we went to like a tactical range that we did any kind of, you know. From the holster. Wow. And so, anyway, and he wasn't wearing a vest. And, you know, he was armed with a 38 special. And this was in the midst of the Yule Love case, which was a. a, a, oh, a wow. from, yeah. My dad and I had actually talked about it that morning. I'd worked on a weekend ride along at my parent agency. And, and Yule Love was a, it was a knife issue as well. Precisely. And so. And that's exactly right. And the LAPD officers uh, were investigating a, uh, a ADW assault with a deadly weapon on a gas company employee who was turning off the gas at her place because she hadn't paid her bill. Yeah, she hit him with a frying pan. She hit him, yeah, a, a frying pan or a shovel, something. Anyway, yeah. so it's an ADW, maybe an attempt murder. If it, she hit him in the head, right? So the LAPD yeah. officers respond. They confront her. She greets him at the door with a twelve-inch butcher knife. 
and she throws them at throws it at them and they light her up and they kill her. And of course, there's a hue and cry, you know, why are they, you know, collecting on a gas bill and all this other stuff? Okay. They right, smoked right. an elderly black woman for not paying her gas bill was the, Precisely. the narrative. Exactly. Yes. And right. so my father and I talked about that. So in my mind, I thought dad was also thinking about, <clears throat> about the Eula Love case. Yeah. And, it's like what's going on right now in this, the, this generation of policing. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, Anyway, that's a whole we'll other yeah, a whole yeah. multitude of shows about that. Right. But but because we all know what those officers are feeling and we know, right. you know, the risks involved every time you make a traffic stop or anything else. But anyway, yeah. back to the story. So any so then um, so for the next 40 something years, I have this vision of how this went down in my head. And I think about it all the time, all the mm-hmm. time. And. Um, and you know, uh, and then about four or five years ago, um, the, uh, LA County Memorial page on Facebook, um, no, I'm sorry. The officer down page, mm-hmm. ODMP, down, yeah, ODMP, which is linked in my, um, in, in on my website. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, it's a, it, it, uh, it has a thing about my father. Well, um, this this lady um posted something on it saying i was there i saw it happen and blah 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 blah. but nobody ever interviewed me so uh a sheriff's lieutenant who was involved with the la county peace officers memorial thing doing investigations on that stuff contacted her got a, a statement and said wow this is kind of different and um and i read the statement but i never talked to her and I finally talked to her a few days ago. And what she had to tell me completely changed the way I perceived how this happened. And I came to a realization of two things. Number one, my dad saved that woman's life. He said he had saved her life, but I wasn't sure because I was under this impression that a whole other set of circumstances happened. So basically what she says is she had just moved to, to L.A. Um, from Connecticut to um to attend college and she was helping out some friends uh teaching windsurfing in, at the baby beach there in the marina and she'd gone back to the equipment van to get some gloves and as she's doing that she looks up and she sees these three guys standing in the parking lot they're about 50 feet away from her and one guy turns around and looks straight at her and he's holding a knife in his hand and he says i i know how to use this he yells it at her i know how to use this and she's like holy crap she's 18 years old you know she's brand new here um, you know, she's a babe in the woods. And so it's like, okay, I got to get help. So she starts to walk away, uh, uh, you know, position herself, reposition herself away from there. And my father pulls up at that moment and the guy starts advancing. Okay. He says that he's advancing as I am moving away. He's advancing towards me. And coincidentally, my father stops where she is, is where she's positioning herself. She says something to him, warning him that this guy is coming. But she said he already had recognized it. And it was a three-wheel motorcycle, which is like an ATV. Those things are hard to get off of. You know, they're clumsy. So so my father, who's like 51 years old, um, he he 
Um, you know, he'd done 20 years in the Coast Guard. He was an engine man. And so his hearing wasn't great. And the engine was running in the car. So or on the bike. So he probably didn't hear a lot of warnings, but he recognized something was wrong. He sees the guy approaching with the knife. So he, he starts to dismount the bike on the right hand side. And at the same time, he's pulling his weapon out and he loses his balance. And, 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 you know, kind of stumbles a little bit. Now the guy goes around the front of the motorcycle and my dad is backpedaling around the front of the motorcycle. Now the guy at this point is literally when my dad is getting off the bike, the guy is like 10, 12 feet away. Now we all know that that's well within the danger zone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Back. You are in trouble at 12 feet. You are in big trouble. Big You're going to get caught. Very. So, so my dad is backpedaling. He's, he never wrote a ticket. She said he never wrote a ticket. That wasn't happening. So he he gets off the bike. He's backpedaling. And as he's backpedaling, the guy's approaching him in, in a very deliberate you know, way. He's coming at him. It's not running, but he's coming at him very deliberately. And he's screaming right. at him and stuff like that. And my dad raises his gun and she says that he's pointing at him in his at his chest. She at first she says, I'm not sure if he was thinking if he's gonna shoot him or not, or that he didn't want to shoot him. And then mm-hmm. and then um the my dad, as he's backpedaling at about eight, nine, eight, nine feet, he trips on his heels of his boots mm-hmm. and falls backwards. The guy lunges on top of him, drives the knife into his chest. And then, you know, does everything else. My And that, she said, the gun discharged. The, literally, the guy was no more than three, four feet away when the gun discharged. Mm-hmm. She, said, she said, I saw it. I watched it happen. So afterwards, she's there. She approaches a uniform. I think I think it was a uniform. The way she described it, it sounded to me like it was a uniform. And and she says, hey, you know, um, I saw this whole thing happen. And the uniform guy says, you know what? We know what happened. That's okay. Thank you very much. Carry on. See you later. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And she says, Gary, she says, I was so traumatized by that incident. She says, I've been carrying this with me for 40 something years. And I have not talked about it with anybody that much. You know, I think her brother mm-hmm. is in law enforcement uh, back east. So I'm sure she talked about it with her brother and stuff like that. But um, and she had seen when she came to California, um, she was interviewed by the sheriff's department and they showed her that video. And she said the positioning of everything is wrong. The vehicle was there was a there was a rider rental truck that was parked there. And um, and my dad's motorcycle. And she said the positioning was completely wrong. All of that was wrong. Right. And the way she described how this happened um, was, I mean, I, I was I was obviously I was, you know, pretty, pretty overcome with emotion there for a minute. I have to tell right. you, understandably, but, yeah. but I was also like like thunderstruck. I mean, my jaw dropped because all this time I had thought my father was a victim of. Um, you know, all those things that they teach you at, at, at CSTI. Right. Know your equipment, wear a vest, you know, stay in shape, be aware, situational awareness, all that stuff. But the fact of the matter is he saved that girl's life because, you know, he was responding to what she was saying and recognizing the threat at the same time. And he did not have a chance. He simply right. did not have a chance. It was it was as if 
it was almost as bad as if he had been in a patrol car and somebody walked up to the car and blasted him. Right. Right. I mean, it was just almost that bad. Right. And I so, mean, that's, it's very, very, probably very vindicating for you to know your dad did it right. You know, like that's um, the, the moment yes. you're like, yeah, he, he, it was sometimes this job, it, we all know this job is dangerous and we all accept the risk. Right. And it, it's, it, you know, it goes with the territory. So to find out he did it right. And it was just, that was the way the dice rolled that day is yeah. probably a lot more comforting than it what is. you've thought for 40 years, 40 plus years. Well, I mean, I'll be, I mean, to be very honest with you, I blame myself for buying that holster for him. You know, he yeah. used to have just, you know, a plain old swivel open top with a strap, right. you know, holster that everybody like carried. The old tech shoemaker. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. LA County, you know, tech shoemaker. And, and I, I was like, you know, I was, I think I was an explorer at the time and I bought him a Bianchi brake front and uh, a speedy loader pouch with two speed loaders right? Mm. to bring him into the 20th century. Come on, dad. Versus the two dump pouches that he had, you know? Right. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've kind of been torturing myself over that for a long time and, you know, and all these other things. But now I realize that this story is just completely different in my, I always thought, you know, I always held my father up on a pedestal and considered him a, a hero, but now I, I know without a shadow of doubt, he saved that girl's life. And that yeah. to me is like, you know, it's so huge, so huge. You know, what did this, <clears throat> this was your third week in the Academy when all this, this played yep. out. Yep. How did that shape your career going forward? Uh-huh. Funny. You should mention that. Hmm. Well, <clears throat> You know, um, cause that was a tough traumatic experience that you oh, experienced yeah. very young um, and early on. Exactly. And I, I, um, took a week off, um, you know, the sheriff's department, the academy and LAPD and a bunch of agencies, high patrol, everybody came to the funeral and all of that police funeral and everything. And and then, um, and I wanted to know as much as I could possibly know about it. The next morning, believe it or not, and I'm sure you guys could relate to this, I think. I actually went to the crime scene. I drove to the crime scene in Maria Del Rey because we lived in Culver City, which was just a few miles away. Mm-hmm. And I looked, I went and looked at the crime scene um, mm-hmm. and, you know, saw the the life-saving equipment that, you know, the, the bandages and the, you know, syringe caps and all that crap that they use. And, um, and then as soon as I could get the report, I devoured the reports and read the reports and because I wanted to know what happened. So <clears throat> I when I graduated, I, you know, finished the class with the class. Um, they um, I'll tell you one thing they did um, when I my first day back in the academy, we were having a a uh, vehicle code lecture. And you know how boring that can be. Right. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the lecture, they stop. And they say, okay, we're gonna show we're gonna show a movie or show a video, whatever it was. And so they they do that, and it's this and it's the CHP Newhall shooting reenactment oh, video. Geez, we had seen five hundred times already. Yeah. And there is no doubt in my mind that they did that deliberately to see if I could hold it together, if I was gonna hang. And I did, you know. I mean, obviously it wasn't a pretty picture, but I was I was okay. 
because uh, I had to. I wasn't going to quit. Right, I worked right. too hard to get there. I was in, I was not going to quit because of this. I was determined. And, and your dad wouldn't want you to. No, he would not have wanted me to. He was so happy when I took my, you know, third week at academy, you have your first PT test, and I passed it. And and he was so happy. I'll never forget, you know, uh, he had tears in his eyes that Friday afternoon when I met him out on the street and told him that I just passed the test and, you know, and, and I'm good. I'm good to go. Um, you know, he was like he had tears in his eyes. And, of course, I saw him Sunday morning and that was it. But um, but when I was in training, we had, you know, uh, let's see, a three month training process with three different FTOs. I had two 5150s, two Crazos with knives mm-hmm. while I was doing that. Now, um, that didn't happen a lot in Manhattan Beach. So I don't know what was going on, but for some reason, on my watch, while I was riding with an FTO, we had two you know, 5150s armed with knives. And the second one was really scary. The first one, we were able to subdue him, and, and it, was, it worked out okay. But the second one is the one that's etched in my memory because – my FTO is an awesome guy. Um, you know, we're, we're the, the, the suspect was a young male. He was naked. He was standing out on the porch of his house and he's screaming at the top of his lungs, but had a big ass butcher knife in his hand and he was terrorizing his family. His wife, I'm sorry, his mother was crying and screaming. His father was crying. It was just a mess. And wow. we were on the side of the house next to a hedge. We were the closest people to him. We were hiding behind a hedge. And I had my 45, which is one of the things I decided I was going to do as soon mm-hmm. as I could was carry a 45 and not a 38. So that was one of the things I did. And obviously I wore a vest all the time too. But so. Which I'm, for the era was not exactly not, common. No, it wasn't common. And the vests we were issued were junk. They Dog were not shit, common. I'll bet. They, yeah. they were so thick. The more Morgan Magnum and they were like. Two inches thick. It was like unbelievable. Anyway, so so I went and bought my own. But um, so I can still picture in my mind's eye when I close my eyes, I can still see my pistol in my hand and the sights and everything and see the crook standing there looking at us and screaming on my and I can hear my FTO saying, Gary, and he's holding his streamlight in his hand. And he says, Gary, flashlight. And he says, Gary, he says, I got this and I got my stick. And if that doesn't work, you shoot him. And I'm like, oh, crap. This is really, really real. Yeah. I mean, yeah, real. And, you know, it resolved itself. Everything was fine. You know, we took him to, to Harbor General Hospital mm-hmm. and got him evaluated and every 5150 commitment, all that stuff. But um, that was really that was a, that was a white knuckler. That was really a white knuckler because, you know, we did not have tasers or right. beanbag rounds or right. we didn't have we didn't even have chemical sprays. We had a gun and a baton and a flashlight, which are really not which is really not an authorized impact weapon. But it was, um, you know, and some guys had sap gloves or saps. But, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> I'll never forget the first time I ever saw. I had lateraled to I, I spent a couple of years at Manhattan Beach and lateraled over to um, to Beverly Hills PD. And my first night on patrols on morning watch hmm. um, and I'm riding with uh, with an awesome guy, Kevin. And we used to call him Burn Bomb. And 
that guy had a nose for crooks that was just unbelievable. He was like a bloodhound. He could find a crook anywhere. Yeah, some and guys are just like that. They just are. They just are. Mm-hmm. And so we're up on, um, we're up cruising around, and we get a call that there was a, a 417, you know, brandishing a firearm, a suspect that was up on Sunset, and he was southbound on La Cienega. And we happened to be on La Cienega, and the guy blasts past us. So we're like, okay, here we go. And I'm the bookman. I'm riding on the passenger side. Right. And, and Kevin's the driver. And so, you know, we, we light uh, LAPD unit comes in behind us and we light the vehicle up and we do a felony stop on him. And this LAPD sergeant comes up to my, on my right hand side as I'm, you know, I've got my 45 on him and everything. And he's screaming and yelling like a crazy man, the suspect is. And the LAPD sergeant says, I have a taser. And I'm like, okay. what the hell is a taser? <laughs> what is a taser? And then I see it was that big oh, one, huh? Yeah, yeah. It was the big, old air taser. Plastic. Yep. Yeah. Looked and like a flat, like a, like a, a big square headed flashlight. Like a, flashlight. Yeah, like a yeah, weird flashlight. That's right. Yeah. And, and I see it in his hand. And I'm like going, okay, well, all right, great. And, and the suspect is approaching and he's disregarding our commands. And all of a sudden I hear this pop, pop. And I went, <laughs> Holy shit. Now, I swear to you, this is true. I swear to you, this is true. I, 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 I said to myself, my God, I'd always heard that LAPD had really crappy ammo. But, man, that sounds like a cap gun. That was <laughs> really crappy because they used to carry 158 grain soft lead ammo back in the day. Round no soft lead ammo. Yeah, and yeah. I thought, wow, man, that is really crappy. But the guy drops. And I, I'm thinking, holy shit, he shot him. Holy crap. <laughs> And then the guy starts rolling around and I realize he's been tasered because I see these like, you know, copper filaments, right? Right. He gets up. He's got one dart in his groin Ooh. and one I think is is in his chest, uh, high on his chest. And we hear this high-pitched humming sound, this sound, okay? And he's got blood coming out of one ear. Well, what happened was, oh, and he yanks, he yanks the barbed thing, the, the dart out of his groin, and there's a hunk of meat on it. Oh. Ooh. Ooh. Yummy. Oh, yeah. Oh, took the tip. Uh, that really. Just the tip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Exactly. Oh, my God. And, um, and uh, what happened was the electric impulse of the taser caused the hearing aids in his ears to overload. Oh, one, wow. One blew out of his ear, and that was a trickle of blood, and the other one overloaded and was humming. Uh, oh, Jesus. The blue of his hearing aids. That was crazy. So that was my first night at Beverly Hills. Yeah, that was crazy. Wow, your first my night man. at Beverly Hills. Uh, <laughs> that was fun. That was, I always I tell people. Beverly Hills. Awesome police department. I did a lot I tell of him, them after I left. Yeah, they were a great police department. They were the one of the first police departments. So... If you have an LAPD style badge and you like the way it looks, you can thank Beverly Hills PD for being the first to take on the Los Angeles Police Department. Because back in the day, LAPD had this beautiful badge that everybody saw in one out of 12. And they told anybody, you copy our badge design and we'll sue you. Yeah, yeah. And Beverly Hills PD, there was a captain, I think, (laughs) that left LAPD and went to work as the chief of Beverly Hills PD. And he said, you know what? To me, and he changed the Beverly Hills PD badge to look just like LAPD's yeah. 
only it was the Beverly Hills City Hall and LAPD didn't do shit and everybody else went, oh, and then a lot of yeah. California agencies changed their badges after that. Yeah, so Pasadena, that a bunch is, of different places. Did. Yep, that's we, the story of how that badge <laughs> became the California standard. Yeah. And the um, and I remember very clearly, you know, when I would run up with uh, some LAPD patrol guys and they look at my badge and they go, the hell man you guys stole our badge and i say no you stole our badge you know <laughs> you know it's like what are you gonna say <laughs> yeah right. you're right you got me on that <laughs> yeah that's yeah, cool so what yeah. well, it's a great looking badge yeah it's a great looking so. badge it's on the it's it's on my cover of my book yeah it's it's yeah it looks good it is probably one of the with with the exception of the nypd detective shield yeah it is probably the most recognizable badge in law enforcement yeah I think LAPD probably should have stuck with their original badge, though, to be quite honest, because that's not the original badge. Uh, Well, they had like five other badges before it, but I think that is the best looking badge in law enforcement. I'm I'm biased. I grew up watching Adam 12. I grew up watching my dad go to work every day wearing it. But that is the that is the absolute coolest looking badge in law enforcement. I remember back in the day when they first started, though, they had this weird star badge with the rounded. Yeah, the circle with the weird rounded. It looks like a flower. It looks it's so terrible. Cool. Oh, I hate oh, it. I like it. I like it. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah. But uh, my dad, you were talking about your when yeah. you were working at Billy PD, and I, I had started to say, but uh, um, I, I always joke around with people that when my dad came on the job, he had a baton, a pair yeah. of handcuffs, yep. a gun, and some yep. extra mags or extra extra sorry, some extra speed loaders, yep. and a call box key. A call the, the game, only, game box key. Yeah, the only radio that he had was in his car. They yeah. he didn't get a radio for his belt until probably twelve years into his career. Yeah, and yeah. The, he you know he got mace before he got a belt a radio belt. Like he, yeah. like it was back in the day. The they pull up, they pull up on the street and turn uh, turn the PA turn the, the radio over to the PA, and that's yeah. how they could hear the radio was um, yep. the PA. I yeah. know that was uh, that was you know. That that was a completely different world than now, you know, completely different oh, yeah. world, yeah. you know. One uh, one one Adam twelve respond to the corner of walk and don't walk for an unknown right. trouble. See the man. Right. That was all you got. Yeah, yeah. exactly. There's, there's yeah. a person standing on this street corner. We don't know what's wrong, but they need a cop. Go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's so funny when you watch Adam twelve now. You go, oh my god, wow, this is such fantasy land stuff. But boy, do they look good! It could be a training. Yeah. It could be a training thing for how you're supposed to look, you know. For it's, sure. But it's for the time. It was super realistic. Oh yeah, oh, and yeah. It's yeah. Just it's just how far things have changed, you know. Yeah. And you know, you think about things like the SLA shootout and the, oh, the Black yeah. Panther shootout. And you think about oh, North yeah. Hollywood, and you think about a New Hall, and you think about all these different events um, that have shaped modern law enforcement and people always you know you always see well when did when did cops and they show a picture of one adam 12 turn into this and then they show a picture of swat teams and bearcats and then the response i've seen is when did this and they show the guys with the masks and the striped shirts turn into this and they show the guys from north hollywood you know you got to keep up with the times exactly you have to and and if you don't you're doomed and um you know that is and you have to train i mean that is one thing that was a bit shocking to me. I work a lot with law enforcement out here and these poor guys, they qualify maybe a couple times a year. Yeah. The and they do the bare minimum. Wow. They shoot a hundred rounds and they have to get a certain score and then they're done. There's no training. Yeah, it's just, yeah. can you still shoot? 
And it's and that is such a false economy because we all know the consequence of error is catastrophic for the oh, officer, God, yeah. for the for the mm-hmm. victim, and for the city or the the employing agency because the lawsuits are terrible and the bad press mm-hmm. and everything else. And nowadays, Antifa is waiting every day for another one to, so they can jump on that one. And oh, yeah. oh so, what are you talking about Gary? Antifa is a figment of your imagination. Just ask the federal government. Yeah, except yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. You got uh, terrorist acts in uh, in Atlanta that they that yeah. they were responsible for, and I love. I was cracking up when I saw the Southern Poverty Law Center attorney is one of the guys that got rolled up behind that. That doesn't surprise me at all. They used to be a serious organization, and like everything else, they eventually just turned corrupt. But totally now, you, now you you mentioned the LAPD badge on the on the cover of your book, yes. but you are in fact a published author, and you have written a book. So tell us yes. uh, how you ended up going you're not the first author we've had on here but i'm always curious as to how uh you sure. go from gumshoe flatfoot you know narc detective terrorism guy to i wrote a book <laughs> <laughs> well there i was no um basically um <clears throat> i i'd done some writing before i had a, a script uh, option by a production company a murder mystery script option by a production company a few years prior to that. Then I deployed to Iraq as a civilian em- embedded advisor. And um, while I was there, um, there were tragically, you know, uh, like, you know, there were suicides on base. There was like sure. two or three suicides right. on base. And there was also um, some kind of, there was like an attempt fragging of, uh, of an officer at oh, another, wow. uh, another forward operating base. And so I got to thinking <clears throat> about, what if um, a guy such as myself, who is a retired detective, um, my hero in this in this book is retired LAPD lieutenant to uh, work major crimes uh, and counterterrorism and all that stuff. And and he deploys to Iraq. But anyway, getting back to the story. So um, basically, um, the um, uh, the story it starts out as a murder mystery where. This guy is asked to kind of help out because he's an experienced homicide detective asked to help out with these homicides on the base, which did happen. Um, and so I came home and I started penciling it out and I went, you know what? I'm a terrorism guy. I'm not really an Agatha Christie guy. So um, I'm going to turn this into a terrorism story. So I started writing and I, you know, cranked out the first draft took me a long time and embarrassingly. Oh, long. I, I, yeah, right. And, um, and then I got an agent and uh, that was hard. Really, really great guy. Great agent in L.A. And um, we'd gone through some more polishes of the book and he was going to go out with the book. His brother was a was a major general uh, in Iraq uh, with the army um, and was there when I was there in 2008, mm-hmm. which was kind of ironic. But the really ironic thing is my character in my book coincidentally has a brother named Michael Mikey and who is in the army and is a general in Iraq. And so that was just like a total happenstance. I had no idea about any of this. The story had long been written. So anyway, so, um, I, um, uh, I got the book uh, done and, uh, and everything, and he was going to go out with it. And then he passed away. And so then oh, we moved geez. to Charlotte. And so I lost some time. It took some time to find another agent. Then I find another publisher and everything. The story outside the wire 
is inspired by my experiences in Iraq as an embedded mm-hmm. counterterrorism advisor with a counter ID counter improvised explosive device defeat cell um, in uh, in uh, Camp Victory, Baghdad, Iraq. And um, it's the story of this retired LAPD um, detective lieutenant um, who is over there doing a similar job to me and who's never been in the service and is thrust into this war, uh, this 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 war zone and this military world, which is weird. Um, for instance, uh, one of the things we we were forbidden to carry loaded weapons. I had an M9 Beretta, which I call, which I disdained. I hated it. Mm-hmm. And I um, um, and it was loaded with ball ammo, but you could not mm-hmm. carry a loaded weapon on on the base. Right. You had to carry magazines. And you had to carry a, a gun with a safety on and an empty magwell. And what? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really dumb it's this is why this is why you would hear about these stories about um you know um local you know iraqi army or iraqi police or afghani army or afghani police you know shooting up uh, a base and killing a bunch of guys well everybody's got an empty damn gun you right, know yeah. the mps have have live ammo you know or the soft guys who basically you know the special operations guys who basically go whatever i'm loading my gun but everybody else is empty, you know, all the Joes, everybody's got an empty gun. So it's right. crazy because everybody's running. I mean, you see people walking around with saws and, you know, M16s and, you know, M9s and all this stuff, but they're all empty. So yeah. so that was one of the things that just made me crazy. And, of course, the bureaucracy and uh, political correctness and all that other stuff. So that was part of this story that I wove in. I wove into this story was this LAPD detective who's used to getting things done now is in a situation where he has to play the army way and can't do the things that he would normally do and gets frustrated and all that stuff. So basically the story begins with a mortar attack on the base and he's slightly wounded. And so uh, he meets this army doctor, they become friends and they start spending time together. And she tells, and there was another person that was killed during the mortar attack. Who's an interpreter. And it turns out, as the investigation goes, it turns out he's a murder victim. So hmm. she can. So he's him. he's basically having to conduct a murder investigation. He is conducting a murder investigation okay. off the books. Right. And as that's pretty good. And as he's doing this, lo and behold, he discovers that there was another murder of another informant, local indigenous informant, and. Mm-hmm. Um, and on base that nobody was talking about because it was a group that was classified and nobody can talk about it. Nobody knew they were there and all this other stuff, which is typical. Right. And, um, and so he starts following and running this stuff down and he starts unraveling a major terrorist plot um, oh, wow. that ends up being um, uh, a, a plot on a massive scale hatched in, uh, in Tehran involving um the players involved are um turncoats uh on base um bad guys on base who are working you know as like you know because there's a ton of local iraqis working on the base selling stuff and cutting hair and doing all this stuff and also um 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 irgc uh, iranian revolutionary guard corps uh, okay um uh, force um operatives 
And, uh, you know, it's, uh, involves uh, weapons of mass destruction, um, targeting um, a multinational meeting uh, in, um, in Baghdad. So, and the book is called uh, Outside the Wire? It's called Outside the Wire. And where, where can you get it? You can get it um, at Barnes & Noble, online oh, at Barnes & Noble. And at um, Amazon. At, at Amazon, of course. Uh, and um, it's, it's out, it's, it's, it is a, an amalgam of a war story, a detective story, and a love story. It's all three elements. I was going to ask, is there a love interest? There is. The doctor. Yeah, uh, the doctor's yeah. a love interest. She's, uh, she's well, don't give away the whole book. Otherwise they won't buy it. <laughs> I know yeah. she's a pretty strong. Character. Now, Gary, you, this book, you've been speaking about this book and this book is based basically based on your time in, in Iraq um, as huh. a civilian. Huh. Um, <clears throat> we didn't really get into too much about it. Uh, I think we would love to have you back. Yeah, We'd love to have you back to, to dive that into stuff. that Iraqi sure. um, OIF uh, deployment that you did uh, sure. as a civilian. I, I think that'd be really stories. cool. I think you probably have some pretty good stories, and it's probably safe to say that, especially this from a different perspective. Yeah, yeah and uh, this deployment probably had you know had a lot to do with your your father who had served twenty years in the Coast Guard, and now you have the chance to go overseas and fulfill exactly. that and exactly. kind of honor his legacy as law enforcement and now as you know military, even though it's civilian, but you're still over there, you know, with the boys. And, it's all know, full and circle. Exactly. And that actually is very, very true. I grew up around the military. I was, uh, you know, I had a, you know, one of those brat cards that you get when you're a dependent, uh, a military dependent. And we used to go to the Navy base in Long Beach when there was a Navy base. And so I grew up around the Navy and we'd go to the Air Force bases and stuff like that. So I grew up around the service and I was predisposed to appreciate what they do. And that was one of the things that I really wanted to showcase in this book, and I think I've done it, is the quality of the young men and women in uniform are is really astounding. They are really, really yeah. wonderful young people, and um, they put it on the line, and they endure such hardships. I mean, they just really do. They just And they just suck it up and keep yeah, the going and race the suck, as they say. Yeah, and, right. You know, and they're they're awesome, and and the women um, are a lot of the women I met. In fact, all the characters in my book, the female characters in my book, are are badass because all the women I met, for the most part, were badass. They were not, you know, um, you know, just you know, they were they were absolutely tough and smart and motivated, just like the men. You know, it was in and they had every you know, all the strength and, and, uh, and ability, um, that they could muster and, and they needed to be showcased. And so that's what I did with the book. So that's awesome. Well, Gary, as you know, we uh, like to dedicate every episode to a fallen brother or sister. And, uh, we always give our guests the opportunity. And my understanding is you have somebody you would like to dedicate this episode to. I, I would like to dedicate this episode to my father, Harold L. Edgington, LA County Harbor Patrol, um, his end of watch is September 30th, 1979 in Marina del Rey, California. Well, rest easy, brother. We've got it from here. And uh, I'm, I, I, I can't growing up with a dad who was a cop. I, I, I still get a little, like, I don't like to hear amazing grace on the bagpipes, uh, even though I love amazing grace on the bagpipes. Um, 
Big time. Yep. And when I see police funerals, it still stirs up those emotions from being a kid of worrying about having to go to my own father's. So I can only imagine from what my fears were to what you went through. So uh, we're very happy to honor your father's uh, dedication and sacrifice with this episode. Well, thank you so much. And I am so pleased to have had this opportunity and to talk about this and share this with you and your audience. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a remarkable thing that, that this, this young lady had, uh, had witnessed and then, you know, shared with Yeah, to find out about it later. Yeah. It's a game changer. And then we got to get you to promise you'll come back and tell us some of those stories about your civilian deployments. Cause that, that's going to be. I'm, 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 mostly retired soon to be absolutely 110% retired. So <laughs> Perfect. I am at your disposal. I assure Great. you. We would, we would love to hear about the, yep. your civilian deployment and all your time spent with the DOJ and terrorism yeah. liaison yeah. and all that oh, stuff. I'm going to have to bleep out a bunch of last names that we talked about at the beginning, but it was worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway. I know. But, uh, you know, it's so sad being E's gone because it was yeah. such a great agency. It was such a world-class agency and it's a, tragedy and a crime that they disbanded that organization they just needed a, a, a little bit bigger badge <laughs> i when i was working on the task force when i was working on the task force one of the guys and he was an is ins agent asked me if i worked for fish and game oh, i had a fishing wow. that was a fishing game badge. it was a little bitty thing it, the only you badge know. i've ever seen the smaller is the fbi badge yeah exactly it's pretty small it's, yeah, it's pretty, pretty small, small. Maybe a Texas Ranger badge is pretty small too. Yeah, that's a cool badge. The Texas it is a cool badge. The history of that is what makes it cool. Exactly. For sure. Exactly. Well, some dangerous dudes. Yeah, well, that's true. Oh, yeah. so. Yes, they are. Yeah, all right, Chuck, what do you got for us? Well, thank you all today for listening. If you like today's podcast, please go and follow us on our Instagram at war underscore stories underscore official and our Facebook at war stories podcast. If you already follow us, please share our posts and our info. You can also go to the link in our bio on Instagram and Facebook to reach all of our socials, our media and our website. Our podcast is on all major podcasting platforms, as well as on our YouTube. If you want to support us, please go to our website at www.warstoriesofficial.com and grab some gear. Uh, if you want to be featured on our show and you think you have a story and you want to share your story, please go to booking.warstories at gmail.com and send me your story and I can get you booked. We are looking for law enforcement, corrections, dispatchers, fire medics, and veterans, as well as we're going to send an invite out to uh, emergency service folks who work in the hospitals and the ER, such as doctors and nurses. Uh, if you have a That's friend who you think would be a great job. fit, let them know about us and give them our booking email. Again, thank you for your support and stay safe. And Gary, I'd be remiss if we didn't have you tell people where they can follow you on, on uh, social media sure. and your website, stuff <laughs> like that. Oh, yeah. Here we go. My uh, my website is www.garyedgingtonauthor.com. Um, as I said before, Outside the Wire is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Um, and um, my Instagram is, if I can read this damn thing, <laughs> at Gary at at G Edgington Books. Um, and um. And my email um, for the author stuff is GaryEdgingtonBooks at gmail.com. And you Perfect. can find me on Facebook. Um, Just type it. I'm Gary, Gary Edgington, Edgington author. author. Yeah. yeah. And that's a, that's a, I have two Facebook accounts. I have the author account and I have another account, which is primarily where most people seem to congregate. <laughs> yeah. 
but uh, right. yeah. So, and there are links to all of that stuff on my website and、um, media appearances and different things. So there's a ton of stuff. There's a thing about my dad and a link to ODMP on the website. The best place to go is to www.garyedgingtonauthor.com, and you can learn all about it. There's a, a chapter of the book, the whole thing. So there you go. Well, Gary, it's wonderful to meet you. We look forward to having you back. And yes, until our next episode, come home with your shield or on it. Roger that. Mullen Lobby.